found in Revelation chapter 3, the church of Philadelphia. This is one of the good ones, as you'll see. Nothing bad is said about the church of Philadelphia, which was the other church in that same situation. Which one? No. no. Nothing good said about Smyrna. That's right. That's I got it back on. Smyrna. Smyrna. Yes. Um, picking up in verse 7. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. And it sure is a heat box in here. Did y'all hear it? Yes. Wow. How did it get that high in here? Hmm. Joe says it's okay. You what? Joe says it's okay. <laughs> Joe stays cold, don't you, Joe? Okay, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, folks, you'll recall back in the book of Colossians, Paul issued a prayer for the Colossians, and one of the, one of the petitions Paul asked is that they would please God in all respects. And you know, that needs to be an ambition for every Christian, that we would seek to live our lives, conduct ourselves in a manner that would be pleasing to the Lord. And I think that's one of the purposes in these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, that if we're to please God, we need to know what pleases Him and what doesn't. And we see that very clearly outlined in these letters uh, to the churches. Uh, for instance, so far we have seen that a church must keep its first love for Christ. We saw that with Ephesus. And then from Smyrna, we learned that a church must be willing to suffer hardship if circumstances demand it and if the culture brings that upon a church, that we would be willing to suffer for our faith. And then from Pergamum, we saw that a church must be morally and ethically pure. Uh, there's to be no compromise in a pluralistic age. And then at Thyatira, we saw that a church must remain doctrinally pure and holy. And then from last week, looking at Sardis, a church must remain vital and renewed and be on the alert. We must not be religiously alive while spiritually dead. Now, tonight we're going to add one more to that list, the church at Philadelphia, of course. And this is a letter of encouragement. Uh, and you'll notice as we look at these letters, Jesus doesn't just point out what is wrong with a fellowship, but he also points out what is right with a fellowship. And that's what he does here with Philadelphia. In fact, this is a letter of unmixed praise. There is no uh, criticism. And this puts this congregation in very sharp contrast to Sardis that we looked at last week. There was nothing good said about Sardis. And what we'll see next week with the Laodicea, there's not much good said about Laodicea either. So Philadelphia is polar opposite from Sardis and Laodicea. 
You know, it's often been said, though, that if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it. Because you're going to foul it up. Uh, Philadelphia was probably about as perfect of a church on earth that you could find. And what we see in Philadelphia is that a church, if we're going to be pleasing to the Lord, must endure and persevere and hold fast to what is true. And there's a promise involved in that. If a church will do that, if they will endure and persevere and hold fast that which is true, God will open doors for them that they won't even currently see. But God will bless them with ministry in the future and, and open doors. Uh, we're following the same outline we have with every letter. Just first of all, talk about the church. The church at Philadelphia was in a city that was dangerously volcanic. Uh, the Greek geographer and philosopher and historian by the name of Strabo, you may remember that name, he called Philadelphia a city full of earthquakes. Uh, many residents just got tired of dealing with constant earthquakes. And so what they did is they just simply moved elsewhere, moved into other areas. And those who stayed in Philadelphia, they were always living in fear of the next earthquake and the devastation that it would bring. Uh, there's a man in modern times, it's been a number of decades ago now, but Sir William Ramsey has traveled that whole area of Asia Minor and kind of looked from a historical standpoint of view at some things that John writes about in Revelation, the historical cities and churches, and, and also he's researched a lot of what Luke, in Luke's gospel, uh, and in the book of Acts, what Luke said. And uh, he has found these biblical writers just amazingly accurate, which shouldn't surprise us, but from a historical standpoint of view, he's found them just amazingly accurate. And uh, he talks about how many of the inhabitants of Philadelphia had moved outside the city into the countryside, and they made it a practice to start building their homes with special pillars and supporting devices to strengthen the walls and the ceilings, again, because of the many earthquakes. Now, from what we know, the church at Philadelphia lasted for a number of centuries. Uh, in fact, they stood firm even after Muslims began taking over the, the area. And they finally uh, succumbed to all of that, and they were destroyed in the mid-14th century. Uh, but I want you to notice, secondly, the commendation in verse 8. Uh, Jesus said, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What tremendous words of commendation Jesus has for this congregation. And uh, you'll see it's a threefold commendation. You have little power, you kept my word, you've not denied my name. Uh, first of all, he says, you have a little power. Now, I want us to think about that for a moment. Here was a church that scholars believe was probably small in number and not particularly wealthy. And yet, what do you notice about them? They were faithful. They had little power, but they were faithful with what they had been given. You know, we said last week, scholars believe and historians believe the church at Sardis was probably the largest and the most prominent out of the churches that we've, that, that we've looked at so far. And yet what we saw last week about Sardis, even though they were large and prominent and well-known, they had not been faithful with what was entrusted to them. So what's that tell you? It tells you the Lord looks at things differently than the world, right? Because the, the world so oftentimes values the big, the powerful, right? Decades ago, you'd read church growth books, and they were emphasizing big. You know, more recent years, I think a healthy trend is in church growth books, they, they talk more about church health, that church needs to be healthy. And then if it's healthy, it'll be reaching who it, it needs to reach. 
So I, I think that's been an encouraging uh, trend. Uh, but again, big and powerful is not always right. I mean, think of the, some of the companies uh, that we've seen collapse, right? Enron, AIG, Lehman, big powerful companies. But problems, right? They were big, but at the same time, corrupt and weak, right? What the church must have is godliness. Godliness. And our motives have to be right if, if we're going to expect God's blessings. We don't need to be concerned with just getting there, but also how we get there. John MacArthur has an excellent little book on America. Some of you may have it. Uh, can God bless America? Because what do you hear all the time? God bless America. Uh, and he's not trying to be derogative in what he says, because obviously everybody wants God's blessings on their country or on their church too. But he makes the case in that book that with the choices that we're making in America, uh, it would not be consistent with God's word for God to bless us. He's talking about a nation. We, we want God to bless us, but the choices America is making, God can't be true to his word and true to his character and his holiness and bless what he has cursed about a nation if they make certain choices. Same is true of a fellowship of believers. If we expect God's blessing... We have to make choices that honor him and glorify him. Uh, and at Philadelphia, they were making choices that God could bless, and God did bless them. And again, it's a reminder to us, we don't have to be big and strong and especially gifted or talented. What he's looking for is faithfulness. In fact, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew 25, because I want you to see this in one of the parables that that Jesus told, Matthew 25, and beginning in verse 14. Uh, Jesus is telling parables about the, the kingdom of God, what it will be like. And in verse 14 of Matthew 25, he says, Again, it, that is the kingdom of God, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off to a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What I want you to notice here is the servant who received two bags received the same commendation as the servant who received five bags. He wasn't judged on what the one with five bags had. He had bigger and more. 
And yet the one with two bags was faithful with what he was given. And he got the very same commendation that the one with more had. So what was the issue? Faithfulness. Being a faithful steward in what God has given you. That's the issue. That's what the Lord is after. So again, here was a congregation that's believed to have been small and not powerful, not influential at all. But they were faithful with what God had given them in ministry and God commends them with no criticism whatsoever. And so my question would be, what has God blessed you with? And what are you doing with what God's given you? You may not have as much, been given as much, spiritually speaking, not just speaking in material terms, but spiritual gifts or resources or whatever. Are you being faithful with what God has given you? That's the issue. You may say, well, I'm small or I'm poor. I'm I'm not as gifted as so-and-so. But again, that's not even the question. Are you faithful with what you've been given? And I want you to notice back in in Revelation again, uh, just like in that parable Jesus told that we just read, with faithfulness, what does the Lord do? He increased even more what they had, right? He increased even more. Pay attention to that. His reward is he blessed them with even more. Even broader ministry. He's promising to set before them an open door that no man can shut. And so here's a little church with little strength, as the world would see it, and yet they were strong. The world would have judged them differently. But it's not the world's judgment that counts, it's the Lord's. You know, I think the reason that God doesn't use us oftentimes more is maybe because some people get too big for their bridges. You know? The minute somebody lands a position, gets power or wealth thrown their way, and that, you know, they start strutting around, and God can't use them anymore because they're not humble enough. It's amazing how God has a knack for using people when they stoop low enough and they acknowledge their own weakness. So again, what are you doing with your opportunities? Read about a shoe company sent two of its salesmen to to Africa to sell shoes. After about a week, one of the salesmen phoned his company and said, send a plane to pick me up. Nobody over here wears shoes. Same time, the second salesman contacted the company and said, send me more shoes, all you've got. Nobody over here wears shoes. (laughs) Two different perspectives. What are you doing with your opportunities? Again, you may say, I'm weak, I have a little strength. Who am I? What can I do? What difference can I make? Be like they were in Philadelphia. They had little strength, but they were faithful. And then uh, secondly, in the the commendation, he says, you've kept my word. You've you've kept my word. You know, I don't think God will bless a congregation that doesn't have a high regard for Scripture. That's got to be the foundation for any faithful ministry. Look at what we're seeing in America right now. Some of the mainline denominations over recent decades. Decisions they're making which show, regardless of what they say, decisions which show they have a very low regard for Scripture. And they're dying. They're dying. Uh, what do we do to keep his word? That's important. Somebody, somebody once said, every great person first learned how to obey, whom to obey, 
and when to obey. Are we obeying his word? Are we keeping his word? There was a missionary translator that was having just a terrible time finding the right word for obedience in the native language of the people he was ministering to. Uh, obedience was a virtue that was seldom practiced among that particular group of people. Well, as he returned home one day, he whistled for his dog. The dog came running at full speed. One of the old natives seeing this said, Your dog is all ear. And the missionary said immediately he had his word for obedience. Obedience is being all ear. You're ready to listen and you're ready to obey. And again, that's what they did at Philadelphia. <clears throat> they, uh, they had the word, they kept the word. Folks, think about what a privilege it is that you hold a Bible in your hand. How many Bibles do you have at home? You, you don't have as many as I have, but anyway, uh, I've probably got more than just about everybody in here put together. But what does that really do? That it really increases our accountability, doesn't it? The privilege of having God's Word. Remember what God said to Joshua in Joshua 1.8? But this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night then you shall make your way prosperous and find success. We've got to keep God's word in all that we do. To Philadelphia, God said, Well done, you've kept my word. They were doers of the word. Sir Leonard Wood once asked the king of France, uh, once visited the king of France, rather, and the king was so pleased with him that he invited him to dinner the next day. Uh, Sir Leonard went to the palace and the king met him in one of the halls. He said, why, why, Sir Leonard, I didn't expect to see you so soon. How is it that you're here already? And Sir Leonard replied, did not your majesty invite me to dine with you? The king replied, yes, but you didn't answer my invitation. Sir Leonard Wood wisely said, a king's invitation is never simply to be answered. It is to be obeyed with great haste. And that was their attitude at Philadelphia when it came to God's word. It was obeyed with great haste. And you know, Jesus said that when we obey his commandments, what is it that we're showing towards him? We're his disciples, and he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. Exactly. And then what he's going to say, And the one who loves me, my Father and I will reveal ourselves to him. Right? Obedience is a sign of love. Obedience is a sign of love. Maybe you don't feel like God ever works in you in any way. And it may be because you've not obeyed something he's previously told you to do. Why do you think he should put something else on your heart if you've not even done what you knew he told you to do at an earlier time? Right? You know, in Acts 2, 42, we read of the early church that they continued in the apostles' doctrine and teaching and so we could say, no wonder they were so blessed. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. And what was God doing through the apostles? He was giving his word. And they continued in that. And they were blessed. Just read the book of Acts. You'll see how blessed they were. Then thirdly, a, a word of commendation. He said, you've not denied my name. Look at that again. You've not denied my name. There at the end of verse 8. You know, there's more subtle ways to deny the name of Christ. It doesn't have to be blatant. For example, maybe you've been in a service before or, or been in some kind of scenario where the name of Jesus was not even mentioned. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I, I read to you Joseph Stoll, who used to be 
uh, president of uh, Moody Bible Institute and invited to the National Prayer Breakfast and some ground rules that were laid early on to all the participants about how they were to even pray. People could talk about God and all gods. So everybody's God in different religions, so to speak. And the name of Jesus was to be avoided. That's a denial of his name. So, but that's a denial of his name. I remember a good friend of mine, an older man in ministry, a, a Christian minister, was, was going to a funeral in town at another local church, and he came back to our church, and, and he was commenting on that funeral service. And he said it was sad because this was a dear Christian saint being laid to rest. And yet the name of Jesus was never mentioned in the service. He said, in fact, the minister who did the service uh, anybody could have done the service. A Buddhist could have done the service. A Hindu. Uh, a Muslim. He said there was nothing distinct about the service. Nothing about the name of Jesus. Nothing about his death, burial, and resurrection. Nothing. What is that? That is a denial of his name. Subtle ways in society today that we see the name of Christ being denied. And the Lord said here in Philadelphia, you've not denied my name. Remember what Jesus said would happen when his name was lifted up? What would he do? Draw all men unto himself. That's right. Uh, you look back at Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. <coughs> Acts 4, verse 12. The apostle said, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Remember, this was when the authorities were telling them, don't preach anymore in this name. And this was a case of civil disobedience, justifiable civil disobedience. They said to the authorities, we're not going to obey you in this. We're not going to stop preaching Jesus because there is no other name under heaven by which uh, we must be saved. Jesus said, you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my Father. At Philadelphia, they had not denied Jesus. And what's the promise given? Look at verse, look as he, he goes on in verse 9 and following. Look, look down to, uh, yeah, verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you since you have kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And, and then also, he says up earlier in verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. <coughs> he's promising here that he's going to bless them. He's going to bless them. He's going to protect them. And he's going to increase their opportunities that they have going to increase protection and blessing. Why? Again, because they've been faithful. They've been faithful. Maybe I'm speaking to somebody here tonight. You want God to entrust more to you than be faithful with what you've been given. Some people sit around and they, they dream about what they don't have and they yearn for more. The key is not to dream about what you don't have, but be faithful with what you do have. That's a biblical principle. <clears throat> it, it works even in the world, doesn't it? Be faithful with what you do have, and other doors will be opened. Doesn't work perfectly in the world, but we do see that principle even at work in the world, don't we? 
working with a guy one time at uh, Harris Teeter. He was a grown man uh, working there. I mean, I was a high school student, college student, and he was working full time there. A great company to work for. He was a sorry worker. And he was always complaining that they didn't give him more, didn't entrust more to him, and didn't pay him more. He was always bellyaching about that. And finally I said, David, you want him to entrust more to you, more responsibilities, more pay? Why don't you work for it a little bit? And they'll see that and recognize that. He said, no, I'm not going to do more until they do more for me first. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, with that attitude, they'll never entrust him with more. And you know what? If he didn't change in his life, he probably never was entrusted with much more, whatever he went on to do in his life. Again, a great need to be faithful with what God has given us. God opened doors for the church at Philadelphia because they kept his word, not denied his name. He enlarged their opportunities. Uh, I want to challenge you to try that in your own spiritual walk. Everything God gives you to do, every opportunity that he gives you, be faithful in it. Be faithful. And trust him that if he deems to give you more, he will. But if you're not faithful with what he's given you, don't, don't expect him to do more. Uh, Jesus gives us our opportunities. He can lock doors in your path. He can unlock doors in your path. I think of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He would trust God to open doors where he sensed God leading him. And guess what God did? Open doors of opportunity to go where he sensed God leading him to go. Sometimes God would close the door and he would conclude, well, what God's will for me to go that direction? He trusted God. But in everything he had, he was faithful. Well, at Philadelphia, they could be assured that he was going to unlock doors before them. Doors that they didn't even see yet. Now, let's think thirdly about the challenge. Look at verse 11. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. <clears throat> What's he say to him here? Hold fast to what you have. That's very appropriate, right? To every other church, what did he say? Repent. You need to change. You need to recognize your shortcoming, your sin, and where you've strayed from the path. But to a church who was faithful, what did he say? Hold fast to what you have. Keep doing what you're doing. Just stay the course. And he goes on to warn them that, uh, that they need to do this so that no one will take their crown. Their reward at the end. They won't lose their salvation, but they might lose their reward if they allow something to knock them off track. Uh, do you remember what Paul said about the Galatians in the same matter? Somebody had cut in on them and knocked them off course. He said, why are you so soon leaving the gospel that I came to you and preached? You've been following a good course. What happened to you? And he speaks to the Galatians as though they were runners, racers, knocked off course. Well, John or Jesus through John is saying to them, hold on to what you have so that nobody will knock you off course. Nobody will take your crown. Nobody will interfere with the reward I have waiting for you one day. Because, you know, sometimes Christians in life, there are all sorts of things that can happen to them to knock them off course. A particular trial comes along. A crisis of some sort or a loss of some sort in their family. A disappointment. And they're knocked off course. A crisis in their finances. We can go on and on with that list. Satan knows what he can use in people's lives to knock them off course. And he's saying here, don't let anybody knock you. Hold fast to what you have. Keep doing what you're doing. All of those
those things that he's just said to them in the commendation, keep doing all that and hold fast to it. Continue. Don't be robbed of your reward. Don't let anybody or anything rob you of your reward. Uh, press on. And that's the second challenge that he gives them. Not only hold fast to what you have, but he says, persevere. Persevere. I, I think it goes without saying that over and over again, we need to encourage people that God is not simply concerned with a good start. God is concerned with a good finish. Right? In fact, Scripture makes it clear that the failure to finish well may be a sign of a lack of true saving faith to begin with. Sometimes I'm asked how to tell the difference between somebody who has fallen by the wayside because they are genuinely saved, but they're just backslidden, or somebody who has fallen by the wayside because they were never saved to begin with. Humanly speaking, I don't know how to tell the difference. That's, that's God's business. But I think if we just look at somebody's life over the long haul, the general course and length of their life, we'll be able to tell what's probably going on there. What did Jesus say? He who endures to the end shall be saved. A saving faith is a persevering faith. A saving faith is a persevering faith. And they were persevering at Philadelphia and he tells them to continue to persevere. Continue to hold fast what you're already doing and persevere. Don't let anybody or anything cut in on you and steal your reward. Some lessons I want to give you. Be faithful with even the little things in your life. With even the little things in your life. Be faithful. Secondly, do not allow the world, the flesh, or the devil to steal your assurance over the nature of God's Word. Do not allow the world, the flesh, or the devil to steal your assurance over the nature of God's Word. Thirdly, do not allow any person or circumstance to discourage you from Christian growth or service. Do not allow any person or circumstance to discourage you from Christian growth or service. And then fourthly, look at each opportunity as an opportunity for obedience to God. So tonight, I simply want to challenge you to be faithful. You might be sitting here thinking that you're weak. You have very little to offer anybody, much less the Lord. But remember, if you're a child of God, God's gifted you in some way. No matter how small or insignificant you may feel, God wants to use you. But if God's going to use you the way He wants to, you've got to surrender everything over to Him. Have you done that? Have you done that? Here was a little church, the church of Philadelphia, insignificant. They surrendered what they had over to Him and look at how God was using them. God specializes in using the weak. Just think what He did in the Old Testament with Gideon, right? Gideon, you've got way too many people with you. You need to call them down. Gideon did that. You've still got way too many people. You need to call them down even more. And with just 300, God used Gideon to conquer the Midianites. God specializes in using small things that are surrendered to Him. I want to challenge you to hold fast to God's Word. It seems like the days we're living in, we're seeing all kinds of foundations being shaken, Right? I mean, just look at compromises we're seeing. Uh, important things in society being turned away from or compromised. Don't compromise God's Word. Hold on to it as both your anchor that keeps you uh, set in storms and as your compass also that's going to direct you in the paths you need to go. 
Hold fast his word. I also want to challenge you not to allow anything or anybody to take you away from what God's doing in your life. Don't let them steal your reward. Press on. Hold fast. Don't let anybody rob you of your crown. And then I finally just want to challenge you to look at your opportunities. Look at the open doors that God has given you. Are you walking through those doors and using those opportunities properly? And again, I'd say, why should God open any other door if you're not even faithful with the one he's led you through? When God says, well done. Again, that's what he said at Philadelphia. Any comments in closing? Scott? Mm-hmm. Linda left the TV on a couple of Sunday mornings ago, went upstairs to get ready for coming to church. And I'm sitting down there, and I'm ready to go, so I watched the tail end of Charles Stanley, uh, his program on Channel 3. And then, glory be, here at 8 o'clock comes Andy Stanley. And uh, what a vast difference. Big contrast. Big contrast. Father and son, massive contrast. I miss Charles. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But here's the thing the heart of the lesson I learned that morning, and it enforces what we've been what you've been talking about tonight, is the fact that it was 8.15 before he even mentioned a scripture. I never saw a copy of God's Word. He's empty-handed all the time. Yeah. But uh, the whole thing is, is that uh, I didn't know whether I was being uh, fed a sermon or I was actually having a conflict with my psychologist. <laughs> it seems funny, but it sure ain't. I find myself by about 820 or so turning somewhere else because it was just a dry hole, so to speak. And you know, years, years ago, he was like his dad. Very faithful. People people are wondering what has happened with him. People are, people are asking that question. The, the Andy Stanley of today is not the Andy Stanley of yesterday. Right. And the whole thing is, he's got a huge congregation. Massively huge. There's a lot of people listening, but they're getting their ears tickled instead. Richard? It's important that we see open doors that we, you know, I'll kind of, I'm ashamed, I've probably seen a lot of open doors in my whole life. And, and I probably didn't use those open doors. But I do recall one incident, and uh, Reverend Seabolt, uh, well, anyway, uh, it was years ago, and we go out um, on visitation, uh, two by two, to different homes. Mm -hmm. And it's Thursday evening. So one night, uh, uh, I was missing a visitation partner. Usually it's an adult, always it's an adult. But he sends me, he said, take my daughter. And his daughter was like uh, eight, nine years old. And I said, boy, this is going to be some odd couple. And so he said, but her daughter, his daughter is a, uh, literally a genius IQ. And as a, and she knew this, the sign language for the deaf and everything. And so I, f I figured for every hundred homes you knock on the door, you might get one or two that would be receptive to hearing about the Lord. So anyway, we went uh, from home to home, didn't know these people, didn't know this, the streets or anything. And um, we uh, was, no, we don't want to hear it, you know, or what she, she's doing with the fingers and everything. And, stuff. and uh, so we get, to, we get to the end of the night, and it's getting dark. It's a better, we better make this the last home run. Because, and there's this cabin back in the woods, and, and step back, and I said, I don't know if we should do that. I'm thinking. But anyway, anyway, we knock on the door, 
and uh, the fellow comes out and uh, we said, I'd like to speak to you about the Lord. And I said, uh, and then uh, he said, no thanks, so we get ready to go. And, and he says, oh, I know somebody goes to your, you know, that's Christian school. And there's um, about 80, 90 people go to that Christian school. And I said, uh, right away, I blurted out, Steve Gravatt. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, what did I say that for? <laughs> and he, uh, he said, you read my mind. And he's saying, people in the cabin, hey guys, come out here, this guy can read your mind. And I was thinking, I, I think we should, uh, maybe we should run, or maybe it's an open door. It's an open door. So they come out, and I said, it's dark out now. I said, can we go in back inside? It was where there's light. And there was uh, people, there, I'd say between five, uh, 15 and 20, they were sleeping on beds, and they were laying all over the place was filled with smoke. And they, I, I said, I could tell you, uh, it, it wasn't me. I, I really felt the presence of the Lord. I think the Lord gave me that name. That's how I, I didn't read your mind. <laughs> I didn't read, I, I just read, I just took, you know. And uh, so the door was open. I'm not saying, you know, it's kind of dangerous, you know. So anyway, I presented the, the gospel to these folks, and the place was jammed with kids, 15 to 20, and and they uh, and after I got done presenting the gospel, I asked for them to raise their hand, and a lot of them raised their hand to receive Christ. And here we are, 50 years later. I'm wondering. 50 years, I wonder if they remember the odd couple that came in. Because <laughs> uh, she was doing with the fingers all everything I was saying. And I'm thinking, this is 50 years later, and I'm thinking, why did um, why did he think of that name, the uh, owner? And maybe he watched that little girl with the fingers, because uh, Steve Gravatt's mother led the... Um, uh, yeah, minister to the deaf people, okay. and maybe somehow uh, he, he uh, that affected him to say, "I know, I know somebody goes to that school." So everybody was used, and I just, I just praise the Lord. You know that there's a lot of open doors, not that dramatic, but there are open doors that you know we could be, you know, we could use to, to elevate the Lord. Amen. But. Uh, so when we get to heaven and we say, God said you could have done this. <laughs> you still got to write down all your stories. <laughs> you got to write down all things. <laughs> sure? We had a training the other day at work, at DEI training, diversity, equity, and whatever. And the girl that taught it was teaching, but she gave us a paper and we had X amount of money, and we had to, 10 of us had to choose what things were most important to us. And of course, I was waiting on somebody to say religion, and nobody would, and I finally said, because it said religion, the ability to worship my um, the way I want. And I said, I don't know how y'all want to practice your religion, but I want to worship my Lord, and I don't want nobody to tell me I can't. So they put that on there. Well, later, the girl, she starts talking about how with diversity and equity, we have to, first we have to realize that we have feelings and we don't think it, like I think I'm better than everybody because they're different than me. And then we have to keep on moving on. And she said the final place where she wants us all to be in the city of Concord, where we accept everybody. And I was like, so I went back to work and I sat down and I told my boss, I shut the door. I said, I want you to know if I have to get to the accepting everybody, I have to quit. And he, he looked at me for a minute and I said, Matt, as a Christian, I can't accept what everybody does. I said, I can love them in God's love, but I will not accept them. They will not think that I agree with their lifestyle. And I just thank Jesus because my, my boss is a Christian. He says, Cheryl, 
you're right, and as long as I'm here, you'll have the job. <laughs> but I just can't believe that's what they're teaching in our jobs. They're teaching that everywhere, that the word is not important, and it's just it's terrible. Such an attack now in society mm-hmm. on the foundational first three chapters of Genesis. Life itself, created in his image, male and female, marriage, Adam and Eve, those foundational chapters of Genesis, systematically being attacked like crazy today. Yeah. And will Christians hold fast his word and not deny his name? That's the challenge. 